Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. My name's Rick Samprin. We discuss the sensational power struggle atop Rogers Communications. Ontario's Green Party is out with a new climate pledge. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau shuffles his cabinet. Will Ontario's new right to disconnect law help you? Hamilton could create pedestrian malls in the spring and summer. And 2021 Grey Cup tickets go on sale to the general public. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CA. What a sensational story that is brewing out of Rogers Communications. There are two factions within Rogers now. One led by Edward Rogers, one of the sons of Ted Rogers, the founder of Rogers Communications, who says he was re-elected chair on Sunday by a new hand-picked board, while several other members of his family, his mom, his siblings, several other board members saying, no, 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 this, this is all illegitimate. So what is happening at Rogers Communications? Well, let's ask one of the experts who's following this story. Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. We say good morning, Marvin. Good morning, Rick. One word comes to mind. Well, I mean, there's a lot of words that come to mind. Uh, the, fir- the first one I thought of was, wow, like what is going on here? Yes, well, my, my first reaction was uh, the words Dallas and Dynasty. <laughs> I, I had missed those TV shows in the past. And it's nice that someone decided to reboot them. Of course, in this case, it's not oil they're fighting over, but a, a telecommunications network. Yes, wow is, is a correct term. Can't really explain to you exactly what's going on here. This seems to have all started a little over four weeks ago uh, when Edward Rogers, who is the son of Ted Rogers, the man who created this telecommunications giant, seemed to fall out of love with the CEO of the company, a fellow named Joe Natale. So he did a one-man mission to find a replacement, uh, looked at the chief financial officer, brought this in front of the board, and I think assumed that it would be rubber-stamped. The board would say, of course we're going to get rid of Joe, of course we'll put in your new CEO. And instead, the board, which includes four family members, Edward and the mother and two sisters, and then five other independent directors, uh, said, no, no, we don't want to get rid of Mr. Natale. No, we don't want a new CEO with your new person. No, please stop doing this. And Edward persisted. Edward said, well, this is the way you feel about it. What I'm going to do is replace those five board members. And the board not only said no to replacing the five board members, but his mother, of all people, his mother moved the motion to remove him as chair of the board. Uh, Edwards vowed, well, I'll still get you, I'll still get even. And so what he seems to have done is on Sunday, just two days ago, uh, as chair of the family trust who controls the voting shares of Rogers, he convened a meeting in which he reinstated himself as chair and reappointed these or appointed these five new people as directors and terminated the others. Of course, the board, the existing board, said, no, that's not a real meeting. You just got together with some of your buddies. You know, you've got to have process here. You've got to follow legal terms. So today, we really don't know who's running the show. And why this has very serious repercussions is that uh, Rogers was in the midst of a $26 billion, that's with a B, billion-dollar takeover of Shaw Communications. This is a big telecommunications company based in the West, uh, and the whole thing now is starting to look like it could unravel because if you're going to help finance the takeover and you're not sure who's really in charge, do I negotiate with Edward and his choice for CEO or do I negotiate with the mother and sisters and their CEO, as a result, you're probably going to say, I'm not going to touch this thing with a hot potato for a while. 
I don't know if, if this is even going to happen. The other part of that uh, proposed deal as well is that, it, it, number one, it's still under regulatory scrutiny. Right. But uh, that deal was originally for, I think it was $40.50 per share for Shaw shares. Right. But Shaw shares went down to $34 and change yesterday. So does Rogers really want to spend $40 a share when it can get it for 34 well, that's, again, a good question. Now, Rogers also, Rogers stock also went down 5% yesterday in trading because of all this confusion. So you've got, of course, the regulatory approval. So will the government approve something when leadership is in question? Uh, is Shaw itself going to agree to be taken over? I can guarantee you that yesterday the Shaw family who owns most of the shares in Shaw Communications, were getting phone calls from other potential suitors and saying, well, look, if this deal is falling through, we'd sure love to buy you, including probably some American companies like Verizon or T-Mobile, who said, well, we've been thinking of getting into Canada. What a great way to do that via Shaw. Uh, And then your point about the value of it, is it still worth the same? Now, one of the problems is the stock market does rely as much on facts and figures as it does emotion. And I think the reason why Shaw shares are down is strictly emotion at this point. I think there's still value in the company. But if they were to fall even more, you're absolutely right. Why continue on with a deal that's overvaluing that company? Marvin Ryder is our guest, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Um, Another part of this is that I, I believe the family, at least uh, Loretta, the mother, and uh, some of her other uh, uh, children are saying that, listen, we need uh, 67% of shareholders to approve any sort of, um, uh, you know, high-level kind of uh, tinkering, if you will, whereas Ed Rogers saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm the guy, and is now going to the B.C. Supreme Court. How, what's the end game here? How is this going to all shake down? You know, again, I have to tell you, I don't know. Uh, I've never seen anything like this in Canadian business history. Uh, Presumably, both sides are getting legal counsel. What I am surprised at is that independent legal counsel would give two different opinions. I personally, my understanding of governance, and I teach some of this stuff, is that uh, Loretta and the sisters are on the on the solid ground here. You can't just go willy nilly uh, calling meetings. Even though he may have been may have been past tense chair of the board, he can't just call a meeting out of the blue and do it in a way that only some of the directors can attend. You've got to have a duly constituted, duly called meeting. I would say they seem to be on the firmer footing. But on the other hand, Edward Rogers is not a stupid person. He's not doing this just uh, on a wing and a prayer here. So presumably he's got some legal advice. I don't know how the B.C. courts are going to sort this out. They've asked for an expedited hearing, meaning they want to do this quickly, uh, correctly. I think if the longer you let this go, the worse it gets for the company. But I can't imagine the wheels of the court moving so fast that we'll get this resolved in a week or ten days. This is likely going to grind on for several weeks. The better approach is to try to negotiate something here, to try to get the parties together. And on that front, Mayor John Tory, uh, of Toronto Mayor John Tory, serves on another board. This is the board of the Family Trust that controls the voting shares. Uh, and he has tried to broker a solution in here. But Edward seems to have a very strong point of view, and there's no compromising. So this could drag on for several more weeks. Uh, we have less than a minute here. Does this impact day-to-day operations because Rogers doesn't know who's in charge? Right. Well, I'm going to say no in the sense that your phone service, your telecommunications, what have you, there's great people in there making all of that happen. But, yeah, at some point, uh, you know, if you need to 
buy some equipment, the equipment company is going to say, well, who, do, who signs the purchase order here? Who's, who's really in charge? So today, tomorrow, the next day, I don't think there's any big effect. But the longer this drags on, especially to the extent there are two sets of leaders, the more complicated this gets. Well, it's really juicy. We're going to grab some popcorn and, uh, and watch. Yeah. <laughs> Marvin, thanks for the time today. Season 2.0 of uh, <laughs> Dynasty. You got it. Have a great day, Marvin. Will do. Marvin Ryder is a professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University and really a sensational story with Rogers Communications. We will, uh, yes, grab some popcorn, grab some uh, hard or soft candy, and uh, watch with uh, and wait with bated breath on how this all shakes down. A very interesting story. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It is a big day on Parliament Hill today. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will take the wraps off his new cabinet later on this morning. Who's getting in? Who's going to be shuffled out? And those who are shown the door to the PM's inner circle, are their egos going to be bruised? And how does this all work? How do you shuffle a cabinet? Brian Gallant is a former premier in New Brunswick. He's also the CEO of the Canadian Centre for the Purpose of the Corporation and senior advisor at Navigator Limited and joins us now. Good morning, Brian. How are you? Good morning. Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for joining us uh, this morning. Most eyeballs, uh, I think, directed at Parliament Hill today are looking at the defense and health portfolios. Would you agree? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think today is a pretty important day for the Trudeau government. I mean, Anytime you put a cabinet together, it's important, but this is obviously a mandate right after an election where I think Canadians sent a message, uh, debatable what that message is. The message, in my opinion, would be essentially people are saying, look, we're not totally satisfied with what we had, but we're going to give you another shot. I think people want to see action. I think they want to see things happen swiftly and, and they want this government to implement things that will have an impact. So with that said, uh, you're right to say that health and defense will be one that people look at today for sort of the political ramifications, consequences, and sort of dynamics. Uh, but I think there's some other portfolios as well that people will be looking into because they, as I said, really want to see this government deliver on some things that are important to them, uh, such as affordability and equality, climate change, as you were uh, talking about, uh, inequity, uh, Indigenous reconciliation. So there's there's a lot on the on the line here for this government. So I think today's a big day because it's going to send a signal of how they're going to implement these things that will have a positive impact on the daily lives of Canadians and address these societal challenges. Uh, Brian, you've been in this position before uh, and having to shuffle around a cabinet. How does it work? How does the PM decide who goes where? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, obviously, before I got into politics, I, I really believed in government and, and, and the power of politics. So I certainly always kind of wondered that as well. So when you get there, it's interesting to go through the process. I mean, the first thing I'd say is that you, while you're doing it, uh, you recognize very much and very quickly that it's an immense honor to have the responsibility of forming a cabinet, but it is indeed a heavy responsibility uh, that comes with lots of challenges because you have already in place many constraints that you have to consider. Every prime minister or premier will will sort of prioritize the constraints a bit more than others and, and and sort of, you know, have their own focus. But at the end of the day, you're going to be looking at things like regional uh, regional uh, considerations, gender considerations, uh, linguistic considerations, uh, perspectives that you want around the table in general for every decision, uh, skill sets, competencies, interests for specific uh, portfolios. So 
it really is one of those things where you have all these constraints on the table and you're trying to kind of put a puzzle together to, to best respect those constraints. You probably never get it perfect, but you do the best you possibly can. And, and one thing that I'll, I'll say that I, that I learned, I wish I would have known the first time I made a cabinet is also, also put some heavy consideration on people's personalities. Uh, at first, I didn't know everyone as well as I certainly did after a year of being in government, uh, as you, as you can, I'm sure imagine. Same thing with the Trudeau, uh, Trudeau government in 2015 when he made his cabinet. I mean, he didn't know all of those individuals intimately like he would after years of working with them. So, I wish I would have known a little bit more and put more weight on their personalities because that plays a role in how effective they'll be, right? You, you could have a portfolio that in the time you're in needs some type of personality, skill set, competency. Uh, so, so anyways, all that to say that, that those, are, those are all the considerations that you try to maneuver while you put this puzzle together. We have uh, one more minute here with Brian Glanch, former New Brunswick uh, Premier, about uh, the uh, cabinet shuffle that's happening today on Parliament Hill. Some egos will be bruised today as MPs are shuffled out of their positions. How does the Prime Minister handle that? Yeah, it, it's not easy. And, and certainly, I think like any organization, government, it, it's intensified when, when you have this type of day. You, you have to really be able to demonstrate to people that will not make it into cabinet. And also, I would argue people that make it into cabinet, but may feel like they got demoted or didn't get a portfolio that they were interested in, even sometimes they will be a bit upset. Uh, you, you need to really sort of in a, in a leadership moment, you have to demonstrate why those choices were made. You have to demonstrate that they're fair. They're what's best for the team. They're what's best for obviously delivering for Canadians or New Brunswickers in my case. So I think if you can do that, most people are, although, yes, they want to be in cabinet, are reasonable and they'll say, okay, I, I do get it. But but you have to spend some time demonstrating why those choices were made and that they, they do make sense, even if they uh, don't all agree with them. Mr. Gallant, thank you for spending some time with us this morning. Enjoy the rest of your day. My pleasure. Well, I have I have something interesting to watch today for sure. All the best. <laughs> Enjoy it. Take care. Brian Gallant, a former New Brunswick Premier, CEO of the Canadian Centre for the Purpose of the Corporation and Senior Advisor at Navigator Limited, giving us a preview of today's Cabinet Shuffle on Parliament Hill, which will begin at Rideau Hall at 10.30 this morning. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're taking a side and it's the side of uh, workers uh, again, there's such a challenge for attracting a talent. Um, the best employers out there are uh, really adapting to uh, the future of work. That is Labour Minister Monty McNaughton as the Ontario government introduces what it says is the first legislation in Canada that's going to give employees the right to disconnect outside of work hours. How's it going to impact you? What are the ramifications if your employer sends you an email over the weekend or off work hours? How's it all going to work? Well, here to give us the rundown of this new proposed law is Manisa Sheikh, senior partner at Levitt Sheikh LLP, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Manisa, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm not too bad. This this law uh, seems to be long overdue. Your thoughts, your reaction to hearing some of the details? I think it sounds great. Um, whether or not, from a practical standpoint, it can be enforced is yet to be determined if it actually becomes law. I think, you know, it's a great, it's a great sales pitch um, from the provincial government. It, there's no doubt about it. 
Um, but I think we're going to see a lot of complaints from, you know, employers, particularly small to medium-sized employers, who are only now just in their ramp-up period, um, you know, through a very depressed pandemic economy. So I think it sounds great because it tells employees, look, you can come to work, but then you can disconnect in the evening to focus on other things, whether that's your family or your, you know, other recreational activities or just having the right to have, you know, some downtime. But is it really something that an employer is going to, from a practical standpoint, be able to enforce? That's the big question. And then the second big question, in my mind at least, is, is it going to create a two-tiered system between those employees who are going to go ahead and continue to respond and do their work into, you know, the late hours of the evening because that's their work ethic or preference versus those who, you know, take the policy at its face value and, you know, don't respond to an email, um, you know, at 5.01 until the next morning. It's yet to be determined. The uh, legislation, there's lots to unpack here, but the legislation would require employees or employers that, uh, rather with 25 or more employees to develop disconnecting from work policies. So this isn't going to be encoded into the labor code. It's going to be up to uh, businesses to develop their own policies. It seems that way for now. I think this is giving businesses still the opportunity from an operational standpoint to, you know, uh, you know, curate to put together a policy that works best for them, given the, the industry that they're in, particularly because this has also been applied to those employers who run more of a shift schedule. Um, so it gives them some power to do things in a way that they see fit. Um, but ultimately, you know, if we do get um, anonymous complaints, because I suspect any complaints about an employer not adhering to this new law that becomes law, um, will be likely anonymous, and then the Ministry of Labor will probably come in to do an investigation to say, is there really a policy, or is it just like, you know, a yellow sticky tab you've put on the bulletin board with, you know, keeping your fingers and toes crossed that no one's actually going to adhere to it. Manisa Sheikh is our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. She's a senior partner at Levitt Sheikh LLP, and we're talking about the right to disconnect policies that are going to be included in new labor legislation by the Ontario government. You mentioned you ex- are expecting a, a rush of complaints or at least an elevated number of complaints, probably off the hop. Uh, I haven't heard of any penalties or proposed ramifications against employers who don't follow these rules. And I think the reason for that is, you know, this is just something that was introduced, as you know, yesterday. And I, I think what the provincial government wants is to appeal to employees. I think if they came in fast and furious with penalties, I think it would really um, cause, again, those small to medium-sized employers to really shrink back and say, you know, is this something that um, is, going to, is going to create a lot of trouble for us in ter- terms of our ability to run our business? So I think it's going to come in waves. I suspect the penalties will look like this. Initially, you know, you'll complain to the Ministry of La- uh, Labor, maybe through an anonymous complaint or if somebody feels comfortable coming forward, not worried about losing their job through a reprisal. And then ultimately, there'll be a determination, maybe a warning. I suspect it'll come in layers. If there's going to be fines or massive fines or a shutdown, I can't imagine that will come after a first, second, or even a third infraction. It's, the legislation is just too new, and there's gonna, and you have to give employers the ability and the time to figure out how it's going to work. Is it realistic to think there's going to be some sort of emergency clause in any policy, i.e. if there's an emergency off hours or on a weekend, we have to contact you through email or a phone call or whatever the case is? There has to be. So I think, you know, even though there will be a policy around a right to disconnect from work, obviously, you know, if it's something 
um, that is going to, you know, that to, de- to the employer's detriment in terms of operationally being able to run their business, and they have to reach out to you. I cannot imagine it would be a legitimate complaint um, from an employee's perspective, saying, "Hey, look, I was finished work at five. They contacted me at six thirty to get the passcode to some, you know, something or the other." I, I don't think this is, uh, you know, it will. I don't think you're going to be able as an employee to use this as a mechanism to prevent your employer from making good faith efforts to simply run their business. If it's just a matter of, okay, we're going to completely ignore the policy and it's business as usual, which means you continue to respond to emails well into the evening after you're off the clock. I don't think that abuse of power is going to be permissible. And I really think that's what this clause is about. It's not about preventing employers from being able to run their business, although there are going to be some massive growing pains here and a little bit of rejigging. I'm just uh, surprised that this is coming at this stage of the pandemic. Excellent analysis once again from Anisa Sheikh, Senior Partner, Levitt Sheikh, LLP. Thanks for the time today and enjoy your day. Have a wonderful morning. You too. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It's called the Carbon Budget Accountability Act, and this is proposed legislation that is being introduced by the Ontario Green Party. And here to discuss it is the leader of the Ontario Greens, Mike Schreiner. Mike, good morning. How are you? Hey, Rick, it's great to join you on a wet Tuesday morning. Yeah, it certainly is uh, wet and rainy and, and windy and, and cool, but uh, hey, it's it's late October. It's uh, it's not snow, at least, so we can uh, we can enjoy that. Um, let's talk about this Accountability Act. What, what's new here? Yeah, so basically what we're proposing is that we actually start introducing a carbon budget in Ontario so that we can hold government accountable on Ontario reducing climate pollution. We're facing a climate emergency. The costs associated with that, particularly in extreme weather events, is going up every year. Ontario in particular, um, our emissions are going in the wrong direction. They're going up, not down. And so in the same way that the Minister of Finance uh, presents a fiscal budget every year, we're saying the Minister of the Environment should present a carbon budget every year to show people where we are in terms of reducing climate pollution and what we need to do over the next year to continue to reduce emissions in a way that benefits our economy and makes sure life is affordable for people. So obviously this is not being done in Ontario. Is it being done in any other Canadian province and has it worked in in, in terms of reducing their carbon footprint? Yeah, this would be a first in Canada, but certainly other countries. So the UK in particular, France is another one that has introduced this kind of legislation. And why it's so important is if you think about it, we oftentimes in the climate conversation, we talk about, oh, you know, we have a 2030 target and a 2050 target, and it feels so far away. And then governments don't really do much to, uh, you know, get us towards that target because it's so far away. And what this says is it says, you know, according to the International Panel on Climate Change, this is how much each country can emit uh, in order to stay within 1.5 degrees Celsius. And so we have looked, calculated that using the IPCC methodology of what it would be for Ontario, outline that in legislation. We don't tell government how they have to do it. I think that's up to each government, and hopefully every political party going into the next election will present platforms. I mean, obviously the Ontario Greens will to show uh, how our party proposes doing it. But it says, you know what, we can't negotiate with physics. We can't deny what is happening in terms of how climate pollution is, you know, damaging our lives and costing us lots of money. So let's hold ourselves accountable. Let's hold government accountable 
and let's require government to report on an annual basis. With this Accountability Act, obviously it screams of, uh, you know, if, if there is some inaction, will there be some penalties? Is there, is there any negative uh, connotation to this act if there is inaction? Well, the one thing we ha- I am proposing, and we'll be introducing the bill later today, is the same accountability mechanism that's in um, um, the finance minister's accountability. If the finance minister doesn't produce a budget uh, by March 31st, both the finance minister and the premier takes a 10% pay cut. So we've essentially taken that language from the Financial Accountability Act and uh, putting it in the Carbon Budget Accountability Act. Our guest is Mike Schreiner. He's the leader of the Ontario Green Party. We're chatting about a new bill that would hold the province accountable on climate pollution. And uh, the uh, Carbon Budget Accountability Act calls for a cutting of Ontario's climate pollution in half by 2030. How achievable is that? You know, it it is achievable. There is no doubt that it is going to be a challenge. But that's exactly why we have to be honest with people about what it's going to take for us to meet our climate obligations and to leave a livable future for our children. And so the best ways Ontario can do that is by electrifying transportation, public transit and personal transit, building more connected, livable, connected cities. I mean, I, I heard you in the, in the news talk about pedestrian malls. What a fantastic idea to improve quality of life, support local businesses and reduce climate pollution at the same time. And then the other one is making our buildings more energy efficient, helping people save money by saving energy uh, and electrifying uh, home heating with high efficiency heat pumps. But do you see all that happening in nine years? I mean, it it, it seems like a far ways away, but that's we have to do a lot to get there by that time. Well, there's no doubt we have to do a lot, but the technology already exists. So if this. You know, if the technology didn't exist, I would say, yeah, it's going to be pretty tough. But the fact that we already have affordable technology that exists, I mean, let's just look at transportation alone. I mean, you know, anybody filling their car up at the gas pump is screaming right now, and understandably so. But if you're filling your car, it costs like one-tenth the price. And so helping people be able to electrify um, their personal transportation will help them save money at the pumps. There's no doubt about that. Electrifying uh, transportation, especially if we roll out uh, electric buses, which we can roll out electric buses very quickly. Obviously, it takes longer to build things like, you know, subways and LRTs. We can get electric buses on the road now. And when it comes to buildings, this is a huge opportunity to create jobs. Some economists modeled out that a $5 billion um, government program to make buildings more efficient would leverage about $80 billion in private capital, create over 800,000 jobs, reduce climate pollution, and help people save money in their energy bills. So to me, those are no-brainers, especially as we come out of COVID, and we obviously want to have a strong economic recovery. So let's create opportunities for people to build new careers and better jobs for themselves. Mike, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate the time this morning, and uh, good luck with this uh, legislation uh, later on today. Hey, I appreciate, appreciate the opportunity. Have a good day, Rick. You too. That's Mike Schreiner, leader of the Ontario Green Party, as they're set to introduce a new bill, the Carbon Budget Accountability Act, that will hold the province accountable on climate pollution. We'll see how the governing Tories uh, receive this um, uh, proposed legislation, whether or not it will become 
a reality. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Should Hamilton close some major streets on weekends during the spring and summer to encourage pedestrians to shop local? Well, it's the focus of our Twitter poll question today. You can vote at AM900CHML. It's also an idea that we're going to chew on now as Hamilton City staff have been asked to study how to make this work. Our guest is Carrie Jarvie, Executive Director of the Downtown Hamilton BIA, and Carrie joins us this morning. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Great. Thanks. How about you? I'm fantastic. What are your thoughts on pedestrianizing a major street or two in downtown Hamilton? Well, we've now had two summers where we fully pedestrianized King William between James and Houston so that the restaurants there were able to spill out into the street um, during COVID. It was it gave them amazing outdoor seating. Um, it was very positive. There was a lot of um, great wins on that street. Um, there's a lot of things that, that we probably, if they're going to do this on other streets, we'd like to make sure we have in place. But it's been, it was been two successful summers. I was down on uh, King William actually last uh, week. Uh, my wife and I went to the Diplomat, and it, there's a different mindset when you're on the street because you don't have to worry about traffic. You know that no cars are turning down that street, and you don't have to avoid anything. And it's just, it's a, it's a nice feeling to be there. It is, and it, it is, and it does give people more space to be able to just wander around, which is lovely. Um, I think we um, we really need to be able to use all of our space, and when things are pedestrianized, it does give people a chance to casually walk about. You know, you do not feel as rushed. You don't feel as, you know, it does feel like a more enjoyable. How are BIA members responding to this idea? Are, are businesses calling you to say, hey, we we got to do this on my street? Um, we had we actually had a lot of use of the on-street patios, which was amazing for areas that we would be more difficult to pedestrianize. So that was that was very helpful. I think there's um, I think there's a lot of areas that in our BIA that would like to see more pedestrianization or at least more ability to have more of a complete street. Um, so as something like this would be able to give us an opportunity to try, um, you know, kick the tires and see what see what would happen on being able to do put some pedestrianized areas, um, especially on a weekend. Uh, I would imagine that some people are would would you know take their bikes to this area, maybe take public transit if they are driving to the downtown in hordes to take in this uh, pedestrianized idea. Is there enough parking downtown to accommodate this? We still have quite a bit of on street parking or um, on street parking. We still have quite a bit of meters, and we have quite a few lots. Um, yes, you can't park right in front of the diplomat. But you can park, you know, uh, probably not even a block or two away. So there are a lot of um, surface parking lots that people can use and then just have a short walk into the area that is pedestrianized. Yeah, we walk right around the corner. I mean, we, we got a great parking spot. So, uh, you know, we played the lottery that night because we, we thought we were pretty lucky. Can this work on any street downtown or does it make more sense to put it on a main road or, or street? In in my opinion, for our area, there's some streets that just wouldn't work just because of um, HSR. We still need people. I mean, people do still come through downtown to go to work, to go to school, um, that we still need HSR to be able to operate efficiently. We need to be able to make sure that um, we, we do not have enough um, biking infrastructure in our area. So we still need to be able to make sure that people um, that are using bikes as, as their sole form of transportation can get around. So if we'd still need to make sure that I think there's blocks of, of Maine and King that might not be helpful, but I think there's also a lot of opportunities that Maine is five lanes. 
So there might be opportunities there to do something more unique in pedestrianization. Could this maybe one day lead to a permanent closure of a downtown street and just make it a pedestrian mall? Um, well, that's what we saw in Gore Park. Gore Park is a primary a pedestrianized area, and you do see that there's been a lot of um, growth. We have some really exciting projects that are happening between James and Houston that will really be the, the finishing touch. There's a lot of construction between Houston and John, and you see that this has really been an area that people are able to use such a beautiful park and not have to worry as much about um, as traffic. Kerry, we're out of time, but I really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Kerry Jarvie, Executive Director of the Downtown Hamilton BIA uh, Lock Street Festival. Another great example of how to, you can shut down a street, have hordes of people clamor about, and uh, really enjoy some of the great businesses in our city. About 400 cities worldwide actually do this, so it's it's pretty popular, and it's worked for uh, many, many cities. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. All hoping to be near the end of this COVID craziness, no better place to be. Tim Hortons Field celebrating the Grey Cup. Uh, nothing more Canadian than that, and I, I do agree. I think it's going to be an amazing day, and it's going to be a sellout for sure. That is CFL Commissioner Randy Ambrosi on the Bill Kelly Show yesterday, chatting about the Grey Cup in Hamilton on December the 12th. Tickets for the Grey Cup go on sale to the general public today at 10 a.m., and here to talk about it is Matt Afinek, the president of the Hamilton Tiger Cats, and he joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Rick, and good morning, Hamilton. Well, this is an exciting day because we had season seat holders kind of choose their seats and get them all in line. Now the general public at 10 this morning are ready to hop on board as well. Yeah, very exciting day, Rick. Uh, you know, months, if not years in the making and uh, being able to put the remaining seats up for uh, the general public to have access to them, uh, our season seat holders, and, and frankly, the season seat holders of the other eight member clubs of the CFL have been amazing. Uh, in their support of this event, but uh, the time has come to welcome the general public, and we'll put those tickets on sale at Ticketmaster.ca at 10 a.m. today. So, how many tickets are left? There's a few thousand left, so uh, you know we're uh, we'll we'll have those all up as of 10 a.m. this morning. But uh, we've got a few thousand left for the game. And uh, price range? What are we looking at? Uh, well, tickets start at $99. Our, our social, which is our kind of standing area in the south end zone of Tim Hortons Field, for those that have uh, followed the news recently, we obviously were a couple of weeks ago fortunate to be awarded the 2023 Grey Cup, um, which, as you know, uh, uh, will come with the full festival and everything that we've go- got going on kind of Wednesday through Sunday here for 2021. Uh, we're doing a bit of a modified festival and the game itself. So we're not expanding Tim Hortons Field this year, Rick. It's just going to operate at the 24,000 it does uh, for Ticat games. So within that, We'll have our standing social. Those are 99 bucks, And the average ticket price in the bowl is about $350. Uh, you mentioned the Grey Cup Festival. Uh, just talk about that and some of the plans in place for that uh, extravaganza. Yeah, we're working with the CFL office on that. We've had to obviously, in light of, you know, frankly, the inability to have certainty in the planning for the better part of, you know, the entirety of this event, 18 months since we've, we've gotten it. Um, you know, we're going to do some great stuff. Uh, downtown in the kind of the days leading up and we'll have some announcements on on that in the forthcoming days and weeks here but uh, you know today is really all about the game itself and and we use the word modify with the festival there's there's no modification with the game itself fans can look forward to a huge halftime show that they've become accustomed to with Grey Cup again that'll be announced in the next uh, couple of weeks here but all the pageantry flyovers all the great Canadian and celebration of the Grey Cup will be in full effect at Tim Hortons Field on December 12th Rick. When can we expect a an announcement regarding the halftime show because there's a lot of excitement a lot of buzz about who is going to be playing the halftime show 
It, it truly is one of the great annual Canadian uh, speculation fests, is it not? Who uh, who gets the tap for Grey Cup halftime? So we uh, obviously work very closely with the CFL office on that, and there's uh, some amazing groups we're working with. So we're gonna we're gonna hold that uh, thunder, if you will, for uh, a forthcoming announcement. But I can assure the crowd or the audience here that uh, it's going to be a big name. Is it going to be next month or is it going to be early December? Can you tell us that? Uh, we're hopeful we can, again, get it out in the in the next couple of weeks, so before December for sure. Right. Matt Afanek is the president of the Hamilton Tiger Cats, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're chatting about Grey Cup tickets available to the general public as of 10 this morning, so get in line at ticketmaster.ca slash Cup or ticats.ca slash tickets. Um, aside from football, there's another kind of football tonight at Tim Hortons Field, and that is the semifinal of the Canadian Championship. Tell us about what's going to happen tonight. Yeah, it's it, it's actually the match is actually uh, tomorrow night at Tim Hortons That's Field. Right, it's yes. uh, Forge FC Hamilton against uh, CF Montreal, um, the MLS club. So we're playing in the semifinal of the Canadian Championship. Uh, you know, this is this is probably the biggest club uh, soccer match, club soccer match played in in our city ever. So it's uh, it's going to be great to get everybody down. Uh, Montreal is a, a very very good MLS club, and you know Forge FC is the defend two time defending champions of the CPL. So we're expecting a great match. And people should get down to uh, Tim Hortons Field to check that out tomorrow night. Uh, it's the first time that Forge has actually played an MLS team, so we're looking forward to, to seeing how we make out there. It's a pretty cool dynamic in having a franchise that's over 150 years old in, in, in terms of the Ticats and one that's just a couple of years old with Forge FC. And the excitement about both those franchises is, uh, is really tangible. Yeah, yeah, it is, and and you, great, thanks for pointing that out. It is an interesting dynamic in terms of the uh, the tenure of both franchises, and you know, from a Forge perspective, we're really excited about what we're building. And uh, you know, obviously, 2019 was a great inaugural season. Then COVID hit, so we're we've been uh, you know kind of fighting to push the business forward and push the club forward. But on the pitch. Uh, we've been the class of the league, winning both uh, both seasons, obviously, and, and competing in uh, regional competitions through CONCACAF as well. So it's it's amazing soccer, and truly one of the unique things about soccer and how it's governed is you can have teams from different leagues playing each other uh, in out-of-league competition. So tomorrow night is one of those, and on the other side in the semifinal, it's our, our partners in the CPL Pacific uh, playing Toronto FC. So the winners of these two matches will play off for the Canadian Championship. Should be exciting. Uh, Matt, thanks for joining us today. Good luck with the uh, general public tickets uh, availability at 10 this morning. And uh, we'll chat with you uh, once the halftime show um, uh, act is uh, is unveiled. Thanks for the time today. Yeah, and thank you for having me, Rick. Have a great day. You too. Matt Affedek, president of the Hamilton Tiger Cats again. Grey Cup tickets for the general public go on sale this morning at 10 a.m. You can go to ticketmaster.ca slash Cup or ticats.ca slash tickets. Get yours because December 12th is going to be a barn burner of a show. And let's just hope the Tiger Cats are in the CFL championship game. Always a heck of a lot more exciting, at least in terms of the game, when the hometown team is on the field for the Grey Cup. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.